Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today, we feature Bruce Dunn, Canadian Bruce Wallace Dunn, responding to his choice for location after graduating Wheaton College, wrote, California, otherwise, no preference. As it happened, Dunn's career did not move him westward, but straight south to Peoria, Illinois. As road-weary vaudevillains used to say, if it'll play in Peoria, it'll play anywhere. There, Dunn's fruitful ministry played for decades, not because of chance, but as a result of, as he observed, many prayers, much planning, and sacrificial giving by hundreds of people. Today, Bruce Dunn presents a sermon on the sin of fretting or worrying. The following material is copywritten by and provided courtesy of the Moody Bible Institute. Tonight I want to talk about what really rightfully should be called a sin that Christians indulge in sometimes quite often, some more seriously than others. It's not the sin of worldliness, which we shun and ought to, not some of the grosser, cruder, more vulgar sins which very obviously a Christian should have no part in whatsoever. But really it boils down to be a sin of not really, totally trusting God in all of our life situations. Or to put in a better known term, it's the sin of fretting or worrying. Do you ever do that? I had a very godly mother and sometimes her three sons would, in a kidding way, when she seemed to be unnecessarily, we thought, concerned about something, we'd kind of tease her a little bit and say, Mom, you know, when you're a Christian, you're not supposed to worry. She was a Scotch lass. She said, I, I know that's right, she said. But she said, I'm not really worrying. She said, I'm just a wee bit burdened to boot it. <laughs> well, sometimes it's hard to draw the line between real destructive worry and being a wee bit burdened to boot it. But we need to remember that this practice, of course, is destructive of a Christian testimony to say nothing of being destructive of our physical health and of our bodies, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Dr. Joseph Montague some years ago wrote a book and wrote in it, you do not get stomach ulcers from what you eat. You get ulcers from what is eating you. And there's some truth to that. Another man wrote a book called Stop Worrying and Get Well. And his chapter headings, some of them are, What Worry Does to the Heart, High Blood Pressure and Worry, Rheumatism and Worry, How Worry Can Cause a Cold, Worry and the Diabetic, Worry and the Thyroid. No doubt about it, it can have a disastrous effect on the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if there is something that stands out in the New Testament, which ought to shame many of us, 
It is the composure of those early Christians under some of the most distressing circumstances that could be imagined. Nothing seemed to get them down. They rode triumphantly on their way in an antagonistic pagan world with all kinds of difficulties and troubles, beatings, imprisonments, and all the rest of it, and they seemed to rise and live above it triumphantly, and they were always able to be victorious over whatever life dished up to them. This in no small way resulted in a tremendous number of conversions to Jesus Christ. Because the world is quite observant about how you react to life's problems. And sometimes it takes a bit more than just correct doctrine and fervent preaching to touch some lives. They need that preaching and that knowledge and that theology and so on to be backed up by evidence that this truth really works in life situations. And it gets people through the tough times in life triumphantly. And I'm sure the word got around in that Roman world about how those Christians survived troubles. How they would go away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name when they were beaten. How one of them, with his head scheduled to come off the next morning, was sleeping between two soldiers, chained to them and asleep not pacing the floor, wringing his hands, pulling out his hair, biting his fingernails, worrying about whether the saints back in town were meeting with the city council and the city manager and the mayor to pull some strings to get him out of there. But he was sleeping between two soldiers, no excedrin, no Samanex, no Nitol, no Bufferin, no Aspirin, no drugs, no anything, no tranquilizers. He really believed in truth, what you and I so often say we believe on paper, but somehow forget it when the pressure comes on, that all things do work together for good to those who love God. He really believed that. Those Christians had the right kind of a reaction. And people immediately ask and say, well, you know, it's very natural to worry about things. And if we grant that to be true, we simply make the remark, since when were Christians to do what comes naturally, as an old, rather poor song used to say. Christians are supposed to do what comes supernaturally. Years ago in Toronto, a man went down to a bicycle shop to buy a bicycle to send out to a missionary in Africa somewhere, back in the days when they could do a lot with bicycles. Now they need jeeps and things like that more. But he, the man shook him around the shop and uh, showed him all the different bicycles, and he asked who it was for and where it was going, and the salesman was unusually impressed with, with, with the explanation that he got. He said, do you mean to tell me that... A fellow would go out and leave the comforts here, and it was in Toronto and Canada, and go way out to that forsaken place out in nowhere with no convenience. Why? He said, that's not natural for anybody to do that. And the man who was there to buy it said, no, sir, it's supernatural. 
And that's the way it's supposed to be. And if there is a natural, understandable human reaction to life's situations, ought there not also to be a supernatural, distinctively Christian reaction to the same life situation? In the days of the Second World War, a family whom I know quite well in Wheaton, the doctors prescribed that all radios were to be taken out of the house, all newspapers kept from coming in, all news magazines, because the woman, the Christian woman, shame on her, was literally going to pieces, worrying about Mussolini and Tojo and Hitler, and it all seems so ridiculous as of tonight, doesn't it? She was absolutely destroying herself, worrying about world problems and world situations. If a person is bereaved suddenly or not so suddenly, there is an understandable, human, normal reaction with which we can sympathize and to which we can show great understanding. But should there not also be a distinctively Christian reaction to that if one is a believer? Surely there should be a difference in how it's received. The reaction should not be identical if we say we know Christ. There ought to be something distinctively Christian. Still some tears, still heartaches, still many things similar, but in the midst of it all, some flavoring that says that person believes. There's a Christian influence in there. That can be said of unemployment, financial reverse, pain, suffering, trouble, you name it. There may be indeed a normal, understandable human reaction, but ought there not also to be a distinctively Christian reaction evident somewhere along the line? If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small, the writer of Proverbs tells us. Now, I'm going to turn to a paragraph of Scripture in a moment, so don't put me down as a preacher that's not going to turn to the Bible. We're going to get there. Just wait a minute. What do people worry about? Well, you name it. Family, friends, finances, world conditions, outer space, cancer, you name it. And they never stop worrying. I met one of my elders in the corridors of the church the other day who's at the point of retirement, has retired from his business, and he mentioned the fact that his 93, I believe he said 93-year-old mother in the 90s, she just had a birthday and was living. I said, Sam, I'll bet you she's still calling you her little baby, isn't she? He said, yeah, she is. You're still her baby. My wife had a... a Aunt Phi, we called her. She was 92 years old, a fretter. I don't know how she made it to 92. She was so much of a fretter. But you could go into her house any time of the day or night, and she would look so depressed and discouraged and down. You'd say, Aunt Phi, what are you worrying about? Oh, she would say, I'm worrying about John, my son. And, oh, Aunt Phi, how old is John? 65 years old, she'd say. <laughs> 
Still worrying about him. That's the way we are. The Bible says, let not your heart be troubled. Now note the phraseology. Let, don't let it. Don't let it be afraid. And the very terminology suggests that Jesus is saying, it's going to be a kind of world in which it will be very easy to be troubled and to be afraid. And you will have to take the necessary steps and not let it. Let not your heart be troubled. Don't let it be afraid. And in Matthew 24, in a great prophetic sermon, he says, See that you be not troubled. See to it. You won't automatically drift into that. You'll have to put an effort forth. You'll have to draw on the means of grace. You'll have to use the resources that God has provided. See to it that you be not troubled when these things come to pass. That's what he said. Now, I want to list for you here tonight, as we come in a moment to a paragraph of Scripture, several antidotes to this whole business. Number one is this, the sovereignty of God. Get a hold of that believe in it, really believe in it, that he works all things after the counsel of his own will. That God is still running things. In the individual life of believers, in the world, among the nations, God is still on the throne and everything's under control even when it doesn't look as if it is. That'll help you over some rough spots. God is sovereign. Secondly, remember this truth from the Bible, that there is a great controlling principle under which God operates in the lives of believers and in the life of his church. It's a phrase that you will find in Philippians chapter 1 verse 12, where Paul, speaking from a prison cell in bonds, says of his own life situation, the things that have happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Note that phrase. The furtherance of the gospel. Paul says it would appear that they happened to me by some stroke of great misfortune, but actually says I've come to understand that God was in it. And what was meant for evil has turned out to be good. And it has fallen out to the furtherance of the gospel. Now that is a guiding principle under which God operates in all of our lives. The reason why he doesn't answer some of your prayers as soon as you think he ought to answer them is because of that principle. I think I mentioned it the other day when Martha and Mary besought Jesus to come quickly, he deliberately stayed where he was for two days and temporarily refused to answer their prayers because when the timing was his to answer them, the furtherance of the gospel was more evident. Multitudes believed because of the raising of Lazarus. And God's timing is influenced by that principle, the furtherance of the gospel. 
This explains a lot of things that happened to us, some of them not pleasant. Have you been getting away from God and getting careless? And the Lord moves in with some chastening, perhaps maybe a financial reverse, maybe a job problem, maybe unemployment, maybe trouble in the family. Because God has in mind the furtherance of the gospel. And if those troubles will drive you to your knees more and make you a better Christian and get you closer to God, they're going to come. And unfortunately, it takes things like that to get us there. We're not smart enough to come the easy way. So many of us have to be forced to come the hard way. But it's out of God's love and concern for us that it takes place. The furtherance of the gospel. Whatever the situation may be, your trials, your tribulations, here's a great guiding principle. The furtherance of the gospel. Will the cause of Christ be advanced, be promoted? That is to say, on the long pull. Maybe not in the very immediate, close future, but on the long pull. Ultimately, will Christ be glorified and the gospel furthered by some experience that you ought to have in your life, even though it be a nasty one for a little while? That's a principle to remember. Not only the sovereignty of God, but the furtherance of the gospel. Now the third one brings us to Matthew 6. Will you turn to Matthew 6? The words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Great passage. About anxiety. About needless care. That destroys your health. Gives a bad testimony to everybody around about you. Did you ever stop to think that it is really quite an awesome thing to tell anybody you're a Christian? Just to say, I am a Christian, or to be known as one, as with your Bible in your hand, you go out of your driveway every Sunday morning to church when your neighbors don't, that's a testimony. And in effect, what we are saying to our neighbors is, by saying, I am a Christian, whether we realize it or not, Many of them read this into that statement. We are saying, I have resources at my disposal to get me through life that you don't have. That's really what we're saying. And then some of the troubles and difficulties of life come to us, the same ones that come to them. And so many of us just fold and come unglued. And some people who are not Christians at all take trouble with a stoic fortitude and says, well, everybody has to have some trouble and they stick their chin out and take it better than some of God's saints do. And our testimony goes down the tube. All right, let's look at this passage for a moment. The Lord Jesus says we're not to be anxious in verse 25. What you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Now, I have six, six phrases here I want to call to your attention in this whole paragraph. Here's the first one. Antidotes for worry. The first one is an argument from the greater to the less. The Lord said, is not the life more than food? Can you create life? Can you breathe into a man's nostrils and give him the breath of life? Why, of course not. 
Only God can do that. So he's saying, listen, life is more than food. And don't you suppose that if God has given you life, he can supply the food to keep it going? Keep body and soul together? He has done the greater so he can do the lesser. Then he says in the second phrase, and the body more than raiment. Can you form this marvelous organism we call our bodies with all of its intricate parts working in harmony as health carries it along and so on and, and the way it works and operates? We are wondrously made, the psalmist said, and it's true. Can you put the muscles and the sinews and the blood and the cells and, and the heart and the liver and all of it in their places and make it all work together in a beautiful, harmonious whole? No, God does that. Well, he says that's more than raiment. God made your body. Don't you think he can give you some clothes to put on it? He's done the greater. Can't you trust him for the lesser? I remember years ago in Wheaton College at a Monday night uh, missions fellowship meeting, we had, I think it was Carl Tannis there. That name will ring a bell with some of you. One of the most, Sudan Interior Mission, I forget, one of those African missions. And he was giving his testimony, and he said, sometimes I'm asked about how my needs are met. And he said, I like to tell people, if I can't trust God for a dollar, how can I trust him for my salvation? If God has done the greater, surely he can do the lesser. And the writer to Romans felt that when he said, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? He has already given us his best. He is therefore totally willing to give us his second best, third best, fourth best, tenth best, one hundredth best, no problem if it's to our blessing and to our needs. Say, Lord says, what are you anxious for? God gave you life and God made your body. Surely having done that, it's a small problem for him to supply the food to keep it going and supply the raiment to keep it clothed if he, has, if he has to send ravens to do it as he did for Elijah. All right, that's the first phrase. Now look at the next one. Some of the people in the audience say, oh yeah, that's all very good. God can do that. Sure he can. Yeah, he's done the greater and he can do the lesser, but will he do the lesser? It's too small. He's too busy. And so he turns it around the other way. In the next phrase he says, Behold the fowls of the air. They sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are you not much better than they? It's the argument from the less to the greater. Swung the other way around. Man is God's highest creation. Created after God's image and after God's likeness. And he feeds the birds. And he sees a sparrow fall to the ground. What do you suppose he's going to do about you? And there's a warm little touch in here that I like. Listen to this. 
Yet your heavenly Father, not their heavenly Father, your heavenly Father feeds them. He's not the heavenly father of the birds. I can have some youngsters on my street come down and knock at the door and, and ask for some food or they're hungry or something. And out of the goodness of my heart, I might indeed give it to them. But if they've got a mother and dad about two houses away who have bread and food, they're the ones that ought to be feeding them to. I'm not under any obligation to feed the neighbor's kids. And God, who gave his son to redeem us and gave his best to purchase our redemption, our heavenly father goes out of his way to feed the birds and attends the funeral of every sparrow, somebody as well said. He sees the sparrow fall to the ground. The heavenly father is there. Don't you suppose he's going to take care of you? And yet some Christians fret and stew and fuss about bills that are three weeks ahead of now that you don't have money for tonight to pay for, forgetting you might be in heaven before three weeks and, and the Antichrist will have to pay your bills for you. <laughs> you know. Like old Jim McGinley said years ago, go ahead and build your church and let Antichrist pay for it. <laughs> There's something to that. Fretting and stewing. All right, an argument from the greater to the less, and then an argument from the less to the greater. Now look at the third one, verse 27. Which of you, by being anxious, can add one cubit unto his stature? Now that can be understood uh, two ways, they tell us. The word really can mean more age, add to the length of your life. Or you can speak it in terms of stature as you grow in the years. In the form of years, you get taller, you get bigger, or you get wider, as the case may be. The Lord said, who of you, by being anxious, can add to your stature? Well, even just taking it as stature, I don't know anything more than fretting and fussing that will droop your shoulders and bend you over and make you look like a sorry soul. But I think what the Lord is saying here, which of you by being anxious can add to your allotted time? And the answer is nobody. You want to shorten your life? Just try to carry all your burdens alone and not throw anything over on the Lord. You'll die a lot younger than planned originally. Now, if it had said, which of you, by being anxious, can subtract, the answer would be everybody. I suggest to you that there are probably many Christians, their bodies that is, lying in their graves tonight who cheated God out of perhaps years of Christian service because they never learned to cast their burden on the Lord and believe him. And they went before their time. Which of you, by being anxious, can add? Nobody. Which of you, by being anxious, can subtract? Everybody. These are our bodies, the temples of the Holy Spirit. We owe it to God to give him as many years of useful service as we possibly can. 
And that does not just involve not eating too much ice cream or Coca-Cola or junk food. It also means not fretting or fussing, trusting Jesus Christ every moment of your life. Trusting him that he knows what he's doing, you see. Now there's a fourth statement here. And that's farther down in verse 32. He talked before that about consider the lilies of the field and Solomon in all his glory and so on. If God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Be not anxious, saying what we shall eat or what we shall drink or wherewithal shall we be clothed. For after all these things... Do the Gentiles seek? Now, the word Gentiles here, of course, is speaking in terms of the heathen world outside of God's people. So what he's really saying here in Matthew's gospel is saying it is, it is heathenish to fret and worry. You're performing a heathen practice. Those who are outside of God's covenant people are absorbed with seeking after things, creature comforts. A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things that he possesseth. They're all out seeking, grasping, grabbing for more and more. That is heathenish, he said. That's acting like people who don't know God. And when you and I fret and fuss and worry and steam around that we don't have what we think we're entitled to and somebody else gets the promotion that we think we ought to have and God seems to favor some other Christians more than he favors us, we come all unglued and go into a pout and anger and lose sleep at night and so on and we act like heathen. We act as if God doesn't know what he's doing. Remember that great text when John the Baptist, discouraged in prison, sent messengers to Jesus to see if he had made a mistake in announcing him as the Messiah. And the Lord sent the messenger back to John, and you said, you go tell him that the, the, the lepers are cleansed, and the lame walk, and the blind see. And then he added this personal word to John, and blessed is he who is never offended in me. John, you see, was offended. He'd been languishing in jail. As Vance Havner puts it, it's one thing to stand on Jordan and give it. It's another thing to sit in jail and take it. See? And it bothered him. And the Lord pronounced that beatitude and said, Blessed is the man who's never offended by the circumstances that I allow to come into his life. And John had some bad ones. Cost him his head a little later. Blessed, special blessing. Blessed is the Christian who will never be offended at the Lord for what happens to him. But say, Lord Jesus, I don't understand this. I can't figure you out, but I'm going to trust you. I believe you. Like Joseph had to do all through his life. He got the dirty end of the stick one time after another, but he never talked nasty about the Lord. He kept sweet before God. And the Lord brought him out into the sunlight and made him prime minister of Egypt. From, talk about from prison to pulpit. It was from prison to prime minister in a matter of a couple hours' time. God brought him out. It's heathenish. That's what you expect of people who have no heavenly father watching over them. No good shepherd leading the sheep. No person controlling your circumstances. Like God said he controlled them for Job. 
So I'm not going to let Job be tested above what he's able to bear. He told the devil that. You can touch him up to this point, but you're going no farther. Then a second time, you can go a little farther, but you're not going to take his life. I won't let you. God has a way of taking care of his own. Let's not act like the heathen. Let's act like we have a wonderful, omnipotent, loving, heavenly father who for reasons quite not quite incomprehensible to us sometimes allows us to go through some unpleasant experiences but always has it under control and as we are resigned sweetly to him he will bring us out into the sunlight again all right the fifth one the fifth one verse 33 antidote to worry seek ye first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all these things that the heathen have been seeking, shall be added unto you. Put first things first. Keep your priorities straight and leave all the rest with God. The probability is you'll get more of those so-called things that way than you will directly going after them. When God finds out he can trust you with more, he might very well give you more. I firmly believe the reason why we don't have more wealthy, really very wealthy Christians than we do, there aren't enough of us that God could trust with that much. We'd go to pieces. We'd just come unglued. We'd really, we'd really have a ball with that dough. And the Lord knows that. He likes to keep us humble, you know. Occasionally he finds somebody he can trust, thank the Lord, because... The gospel takes money to get it spread out. We have to have some people who will give it, you see. First things first. Get your priorities straight. Leave the rest with God. Finally, the sixth thing. At the end of verse 34, it says in that verse, Don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is its own evil. Now, he's not talking here about moral evil. He's talking about the evil he's been dealing with in the whole paragraph of unnecessary anxious care and showing a mistrust and a distrust of God and, in effect, accusing him of not knowing what he's doing. He's not running your affairs right. He's let them all get out of control. That's what he's talking about. Now, he's saying here, that life's burdens and life's responsibilities taken on a 24-hour basis always will be sufficient, the word is, never excessive. That's what he's saying. In other words, the Lord is saying here to you that there is never a 24-hour day in your life that you won't triumphantly survive. He's guaranteeing this. He said, I won't let there be a 24-hour period that you can't take. I just won't let it be. And the reason why many Christians end up in mental hospitals or in a, on a psychiatric couches and so on very often is because they're still worrying about some bad decisions they made three weeks ago and the goofs they did. And they're worrying about the goofs they will make three weeks down the line and six months later and whether their son will marry the right girl two years from now and whether he'll pass his exams six months from now. And they pile that all on in the 124 hours and then they have to run to the doctor to get some pills. Instead of settling for the gospel, as somebody once said. <laughs> Truth to that. Jesus says, listen, 
I'll guarantee you every, each day will be sufficient if you live that way. Now, Dale Carnegie wrote a book on worry, and he really made a million dollars, they say, just on this principle. And one of his chapters has a, a beautiful title to it based on this verse. And it says this, live in day-tight compartments. You've heard of watertight compartments. Live in day-tight compartments. Because the Lord Jesus has promised you that you can make it through a day. And you know, he may come tonight yet. What's the use of worrying about tomorrow's problems? What a tragic waste of time and energy and health to fret and stew about things down the road. When he puts forth his sheep, he goes before them. I love that. The Lord Jesus is already out in Thursday checking it out, rearranging it, sifting it out, letting the devil know you're not going to send that in the right. They're not ready for that. They couldn't take that. I'm not going to let you do that. Rearranging Thursday. So by the time it gets to you and it has to get past him, so hear that? It has to get past him before it gets to you. And when it gets past him, it has been readjusted, rearranged, sifted out, and it's just the kind of a Thursday that God has in mind for your blessing. I close with this quotation from an old United States Public Health Service bulletin years ago. So far as is known, no bird ever tried to build more nests than its neighbor. No fox ever fretted because he had only one hole in which to hide. No squirrel ever died of anxiety lest he should not lay by enough for two winters instead of one. And no dog ever lost any sleep over the fact that he had not enough bones laid aside for his declining years. <laughs> it takes human beings to do that. It takes human beings to do that. Let us bow in prayer. Father, bless to our hearts these considerations of thy word this morning. Continue to be with us throughout this day. Make this a great day in the life of each believer here, and indeed a day of salvation for any who have not yet trusted Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. All the people said, Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Bruce Dunn. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.